Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Veith. Today, we'll be offering you one of our encore episodes from a previous season. We hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with a new episode next time. Welcome back to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. We're once again joined by trial attorney and author Patrick Malone. Pat, thanks for joining us again. Hey, great to be with you guys. Thanks. We had just been discussing cross-examination, focusing on Irving Younger's Ten Commandments. Pat, is there any way that you might want to wrap up where we've been so far and introduce the next part of what we're going to discuss? Just to finish off talking about Professor Younger's commandments, the way I would rewrite them is like his first commandment was be brief. Well, if a witness has just spent two hours on the stand utterly destroying your case and you want to win your case, there's no way you can be brief with that witness. You have to join battle with them. So instead of saying be brief, you need to say be proportional to the harm that's been caused to your case. A witness who hasn't hurt you, you can just say, I have no questions. But a witness with big time harm in their eyes, you've got to come back at them. Another commandment I would say, I wouldn't put them as commandments, I'd say guidance, is to ask simple questions, plain questions, with usually with fairly narrow answers. And to ask only questions whose answers you can deal with. You don't have to know the answer to the question, as we were talking in the last episode. But if there's a, and most questions are like this, most subjects, there is a limited universe of what the witness can say in response to the questions. So you can ask a Hawaii question and it can, can be very good. Like one example from my last trial was, I was dealing with one of these IME guys who never examined our client, but just did a quote unquote records review. So this I think is absolute goldmine of material for cross examiners because here's a medical witness who wants to give opinions about someone he's never met and someone he's never done even a basic physical exam on, someone he's never listened to their history. And so we get to talk about why history is so important, why a physical exam is so important. And this all leads up to saying, so how come you didn't do one here? Because there is a universe of potential answers to that question, and none of them are really good for that witness. Well, I didn't need to speak to your client because your client gave a very lengthy deposition. Well, you have an answer for that, which is, well, wait a second. In your regular medical practice, how often do you delegate the job of getting a good medical history to some lawyer who's adverse to the person you're examining? You never do that, do you? And of course they don't. So that's not a good answer for them. And 
Is there any good answer? Well, a defense counsel did not authorize that as one of the expenditures they wanted to make on the case. Wait a second. They paid you X dollars for reading all these records and you didn't try to persuade them that maybe spending another one hour of the defense lawyer's budget would potentially be fruitful. In my case, I wound up suggesting to the guy at the end of the cross the real reason why I thought that he didn't want to examine our guy. Our guy had gotten a really bad chronic pain syndrome. It's called complex regional pain syndrome. It used to be called RSD, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. And it's where the brain basically overreacts to sensory signals in a limb that's had some kind of trauma to it, even fairly minor trauma. My guy had a sprained ankle and it just never healed. And after a couple of arthroscopies where they went in and cleaned out some fibrous material and and inflammation inside the joint, he wound up with complex regional pain syndrome. Well, this witness had a million reasons why he wanted to be skeptical of that and why he wanted to say that, well, it just doesn't add up. There's too much contradiction going on here. So I just suggested point blank by the end of the cross that the reason you didn't want to examine my guy is that if you had examined him, rather than doing all this insinuating that you've been doing over the last couple hours, where you insinuate and imply that there's something fake or exaggerating about his response to pain, you would have discovered that he's a genuine human being with a really serious pain problem, and it would have ruined your ability to advocate against him. Oh, no, that's not what I'm saying at all, Mr. Malone. But I could put that out there on the table by the end of the cross because we had set up a pattern that there really was no good explanation for why he didn't want to examine our guy. What comes to mind here, there's some psychiatric or psychological experts who spend a few hours with the patient and then come up with these grandiose conclusions about what's going on in their brains. Do you have any suggestions about how to approach that where there is an examination, but it's just seems laughably inadequate? Usually the treating doctors are going to be your friends. They may or may not actually testify in your case, but if you have good medical records from them and you can make the point to the jury that they're not being paid extra to come up with these opinions that they put in their records, that they did this in order to try to treat the patient. They weren't there trying to advocate for a cause one side or the other. So you set up your treaters for them being credible, objective witnesses, and then you compare it to the amount of time that they spent with your client compared to the amount of time that this so-called independent guy spent, and that can usually do a good job on them. Pat, you mentioned that you've rewritten some of the Ten Commandments, and I just wanted to mention for the listeners that at your law firm website, patrickmalonelaw.com, you offer a chapter of your your book in which you do rewrite a number of these. I'm just wondering if you might want to comment a little bit more about how you've rewritten these commandments. It's a free chapter from the book, and the reason it's on the website is that uh, Litigation Magazine published that as a, as a book excerpt. And so they gave me the right to put up 
my copy of their copy on the website. So I was actually listing some of them for you before. I think I had listed number three, which was ask only questions whose answers you can deal with. And then the next one would be listen to the witness's answer and follow up. Lots of times they're going to give you openings if you really are listening to them that let you follow up and really get good stuff. Next one is don't chase cheap points on your cross that the witness or the redirecting counsel can easily crush. And actually, that's kind of a reaction to one of the, I think, most ridiculous of the so-called Ten Commandments of Younger, and that was the one that says, don't ask one question too many. Now, of course, that's great advice often given by the Monday morning quarterback from his armchair because it's only obvious after you've asked the question. But the example that Professor Younger gives, and there are some classic examples of this, they don't prove his point at all. Famous story, cross-examining the witness in the criminal trial who was testifying that he'd seen the defendant assault the victim. So the cross-examiner is up there and he says, so, sir, you admit you did not see my client bite off the ear of the victim. Isn't that true? And the answer is, yes, I did not see him bite off the ear. Well, then, and the question too many is, then how do you know that he bit off the ear? Because I saw him spit it out. Well, <laughs> it's a funny story, but let's say you had followed Professor Younger's advice and you had said, you didn't see my client bite off the ear, did you? And then the guy says, that's right, I did not see it. No further questions, Your Honor. And then you sit down. Well, what he forgets is there's this thing called redirect examination. And so the other lawyer stands up and says, so just following up on that last question, how do you know that he bit the ear off? Answer, because I saw him spit it out. And that's even worse for you because then the jury knows that you're one of these tricky lawyers who tries to make cheap points if they can get away with it. So that's bad. I saw that commandment back in law school. I've been waiting 40 years for the case where I can use that ear-biting strategy, but it never happened. Yeah, yeah it just doesn't work. On my shortened list of cross advice that I do give, the other one was to make sure the jury understands your important points before the witness leaves the stand. He says, save the ultimate point for closing. And that leaves you in this peculiar situation where you're kind of slinking away from the witness and hoping nothing happens to upset your little apple cart that you've set up so carefully. But then when you come back in closing argument, it's too late. So the classic example, and this is fictional, but it's got a lot of truth to it, is the famous scene in My Cousin Vinny where... Vinny is cross-examining a guy who had testified on direct that he knew the kids had only been in the store for five minutes because it took him five minutes to fix his breakfast. And Vinny asks him what he had for breakfast, uh, eggs and grits. How do you like your grits? Regular, creamy, or al dente? <laughs> and the witness says, well, 
regular, I guess. Instant grits? No, no self-respecting Southerner would cook instant grits. I take pride in my grits. But Irving Younger would have stopped before this point. But here's the ultimate point. So, Mr. Tipton, can you explain why it is that it takes you five minutes to cook regular grits on your stove when it takes the entire grit-eating world 20 minutes to cook regular grits? And Mr. Tipton says, well, I don't know. I'm a fast cook, I guess. And and Vinny, then there's a funny scene where Vinny says, I'm sorry, I was standing all the way over here by the jury. What did you say? You said, I'm a fast cook, that's it? Are we to believe that the laws of physics are suspended when cooking on your stove? (laughs) And then he has some other funny things where he takes it a little bit over the top. But the point is that what Professor Younger would have done is said, he would have said it in closing argument. Ladies and gentlemen, very important thing happened with Mr. Tipton. Remember, I asked him if he had regular grits or instant grits, and he affirmed regular grits, but he also said five minutes. Well, we all know that it takes 20 minutes. And by then, of course, the jury has moved on to other points. And if you had done it in real time with the guy on the stand, you could have made your point. You could have crushed the witness. Now it's too late. They're they're thinking about other stuff, and they've got conviction on their mind. So, Pat, let me ask you this. One of the things that you said is most important is figuring out what points to cross the witness on. I teach a class at the law school here in St. Louis at SLU, and when we cover cross-examination, one of the things I say is don't shoot every mosquito, as they say. Hit the main points. Can you give any more guidance for our listeners in terms of what qualifies as a main point? How do you know if it's a point that's significant enough for you to spend time on in cross-examination? Excellent question, John. There's not a short answer. Part of it is just having the common sense to separate the relevant from the irrelevant. But I have a whole system in the book where there basically are five different subject matters of any cross-examination. One is agreements that you can get with the witness about your case that builds your case. And then if you can't get those, then there are four ways to tear down the witness's credibility, either through bias, through ignorance or mistakes by the witness about important facts, for contradictions where the witness contradicts either himself in a deposition or contradicts others that you can exploit, and finally, lack of fit which is qualifications. This witness may be an expert on some things, but he's not an expert on what's important in this case. So I kind of put that out as kind of a catalog of the five areas you need to think about. But then what you want to do is look for only those where you can really deliver a crushing blow to the witness. So You wouldn't do bias with a witness, for example, if this is a witness who was a 60-40 defense witness and 40% plaintiff's witness, because that's a fairly trivial difference between a 50-50 down the middle guy, whereas somebody who is 95% 
a defense witness, yeah, you might want to chase bias. But you want to do it in a systematic way that really makes the point to the jury. You would never say, so you testify 95% of the time for the defense. Is that true? Well, it's true that I'm called to court 95% of the time by the defense. Yes, that is true. And then leave it there. You would never do that. You would have to figure out ways to expand the point so that the jury gets it. One of the ways I did it once was to just ask the guy, the lawyer on the other side was worried enough about it that he had brought out the so-called take the sting out idea by doing it on direct. He had brought out that this guy was a 95 percenter, but never explained why. And I came back on cross and like the first question I asked was, Dr. Jones, did you ever wonder why it is that your phone never rings from plaintiff lawyers? Did you ever wonder about that? And he basically said, no, he didn't wonder about it. And I said, well, I mean, did it ever occur to you that maybe the reason you only get calls from defense lawyers is you've got a reputation as a defense witness? And of course, he denies that, but I have put that point out there. And that's not going to work with all witnesses. You kind of have to pick your points and pick ones that you can make into a big deal. I have situations where, and I'm sure you've seen it too, you might have a witness on the other side who does most of his testifying for the defense, hardly ever testifies for the plaintiff, but you got a witness yourself who's got a little baggage. What do you do then? Yeah, then I'm not sure I would chase it at all because there's nothing that smells worse in the courtroom than a hypocrite. And you don't want to set up a double standard kind of thing where the other side gets to stand up in closing and say, you know, Malone made such a big deal about my expert only testifying for the defense. Well, yeah, but what about his guy? We brought that out with his guy. So if you can't believe either one of them, we're fine with that, ladies and gentlemen, because he has the burden of proof. <laughs> <laughs> I do almost exclusively plaintiff stuff. And most of the time, there's at least one witness on each side who's got some baggage or whatever. But you're right. You have to judge each situation. Does your approach with a witness on cross-examination, does it depend in part on their demeanor, their personality? Does that change your approach to cross-examination? And if so, how? I tell you, the likable adverse witness is super dangerous. And there are kind of two ways that I think of to approach those. If you're convinced that it's phony and it's all a show, you can usually puncture their balloon just by being persistent with them, but remaining ultra calm and, and polite. I've got an example in the book from a plaintiff's lawyer named Gary Fox. Uh, Gary was cross-examining a pediatric infectious disease doctor who has testified hundreds of times, always on the side of the hospital or the doctor, usually in a malpractice case where there's been some tragic failure to diagnose a bad infection in a baby with terrible consequences, either death or brain damage. And this guy always comes in on the defense side. So one of his questions was, well, doctor, you always testify for the defense. And the witness says, uh, no, sir, you, you misunderstand. I don't testify 
either for the defense or for the plaintiff. I testify for what I think is the objective scientific truth. And if that helps one side or the other, well, you know, I'm just trying to call it like I see it. Well, sir, and he has to come back again, sir, but the lawyers who call you to court, who pay your bill, those are 99% defense lawyers. Is that correct? And then the witness has to admit that it's true. But you don't want to do that in a way that shows you're annoyed with this self-serving witness. You want to just say, oh, I'm sorry, we misunderstand each other. Here's what I'm asking. The people who pay you, though, those are defense lawyers. Is that correct? Do I have that right? So when you're dealing with one of these very slick witnesses who is evading you, but doing it with a smile and constant protestations that they're just trying to give you the objective truth and whatnot, the worst thing that you could do is to lose your temper at this person. And it's frustrating because you know them so much better than the jury does, but the jury has been essentially fooled by the person, and it's easy to just blow a fuse. But then you definitely will lose if you do that. What you need to do instead is let the witness expose themselves. And the way you do that is you continue to ask them polite I'll get this five P's thing. Well, you pick your topic and then you go with questions that are, you persist, polite, pointed, and plain. Persist, polite, pointed, and plain. And then you got to know when to stop. You don't stop when he or she has won the contest. You just basically but politely insist on answers to your questions. For example, I was talking a minute ago about this very slick pediatric infectious disease guy that Gary Fox was cross-examining, and Gary was trying to ask him how much he was being paid for the case. And the witness says, well, I I think I'm being paid $2,000 for today's appearance. And Gary says, no, I'm sorry, we misunderstood each other. I meant to ask, how much are you being paid for this case? You've been on this case for two years now. How much total? I don't have that number, Mr. Fox. I can't tell you. Well, could it be 30,000, 40,000, 50,000? I'm sorry, Mr. Fox, I just don't have that number. So I'm telescoping something that was drawn out quite a bit more. But it was very effective because Gary was simply trying to get an answer to the question, but he was doing it in a very low-key, quiet, plain-spoken way just trying to find out how much money the witness had made on the case, and the witness was constantly dodging the question, and the jury could suddenly see the witness in a new light and see that all the smiles and looking directly at them were, it was a different person. He was being evasive. Pat, is there a time when it is appropriate to bear down and get firm or maybe even get a little sharp? with an expert witness? Oh, sure. Yeah. If they keep evading your questions, it has to be really super obvious though. And bearing down by repeating the question is fine, but bearing down by being sarcastic and stuff like that, that does not work. When I did a kind of a money cross in this uh, last trial of mine that I mentioned to you, the Federal Tort Claims Act case, where I said, so how much are you being paid for this case? 
And the witness says, oh, I think it's $500 an hour. And I said, no, sir, I'm sorry, we misunderstood each other. How much are you being paid for this case? Well, uh, I think it was a total of $20,000 so far. So, you know, you just repeat your questions until you get an answer or the witness makes it clear that they have no good answer. Could you talk a little bit about your approach to choosing your own experts? Well, you know, subject matter is dominant. You want to get somebody who is truly an expert about the situation at hand. And the problem with a lot of us on the plaintiff's side is that there are experts out there who are kind of all-purpose experts. They'll tell you anything that they think you want to know. But when you bear down on, okay, well, let's talk about this exact procedure that was done in this case. Well, I don't do that procedure, you know, and that can be a fatal blow. But then, of course, you want to, when you get past that point, you get somebody who has deep subject matter expertise, then you really want them to be a genuine and heartfelt person and not some kind of gamesmanship. We had a unfortunate situation with an expert on a case. Thankfully, we hadn't hired him, so we didn't take the blow for this, but it still was a blow against our client because this expert, he was trying to parry the defense cross-examiner by just kind of rolling his eyes and looking at the jury and sighing like they were in on the secret with him that he thought the defense lawyer was a total idiot. Well, it didn't work because the lawyer was just trying to ask questions. So, you know, it's a matter of personality in the long run. But that's another reason why we have a rule in our office that before you engage an expert for a big case, you don't just do it on the phone, but you actually go and meet with the person and sit down with them because you learn so much more about their overall personality and demeanor and how they're going to come across to a jury. We've covered a lot of territory here. I know that you've written before about your summary for how to achieve your goals in cross-examination with the opposing expert. Could you comment a bit about that, about uh, your, your rules for how to achieve those goals? I could kind of sum it up a little bit by saying that a good end of the line with a witness where you're sitting down, not with your tail between your legs, but with having scored some really good points and exposed the witness and given the jury a different impression of this witness than they started out with. And really, that actually is your ultimate goal, is to give an impression of the witness that they are either, take your pick, over the hill or bias or evasive, or they just don't know the facts of the case, or they just don't have real expertise on the case, whatever it is, you want to create a firm impression. And the way you do that is, number one, with deep research on the witness. This is my 30-day rule that you really have got to get out there and do lots of research, not within the confines of the case. There's actually nothing like fear of failure to prompt research, and especially when you don't have your own deposition on the witness, and you've got to just go out there and find out stuff about them, it can spur you on to really go for a really exhaustive search. So deep research on the witness is rule one. Then number two, I would say you want to think out your goals with the witness 
and decide on which ones are important. As John was saying earlier, you don't need to bat at all the mosquitoes circulating in the room. You need to pick out the most important topics that will result in the jury getting a totally different impression of the witness. Then you want to have rules of the road type headlines that are clearly announced to the jury and the witness. Sir, you're required to be objective and impartial when you testify as an expert witness, and you force them to agree with that. That means no cherry picking of convenient facts and avoiding inconvenient facts. You have to look at all the facts of the case, you know, that kind of thing. And then you follow through to the end of the road on whatever particular topic it is, and you make sure you've explored it thoroughly. And in the course of doing that, you're not afraid of asking questions that you don't know the precise answer to because you've thought through the questions, you know the universe of potential answers, and you have a plan for dealing with each answer. If we've got a second or two, I can give you another example that I think is a good all-purpose one, which is what if you've got a juicy quote from a piece of medical literature that you want to use with this witness because it helps your case quite a bit and it kind of contradicts something that they want to say. Now, you've got to know the rule of evidence that allows this to be a hearsay exception. The federal rule is called 803-18. I assume Missouri has something pretty similar in the state rules. You can use it as an opportunity to expose the witness. So this is the rule, 803-18, that says that if something is established as quote-unquote reliable authority, then it can be brought out either on direct exam or on cross-examination. Well, a lot of witnesses, especially professional witnesses, will say, no, nothing's authoritative. And then they're kind of laughing into their sleeve saying, ha, 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 you thought you got me there and I got out of it because nothing's authoritative. Well, this is really an opportunity for you if you've got the right piece of evidence. Now, I happen to have in this case, and I didn't have to use it because he readily agreed with my main point, which was I was talking about how important it was to take a good history and physical of a patient. But I had this from Harrison's Principles of Internal Medicine, 17th edition, right on page one of the whole thing. So I was ready for this witness to do the old evasion, which is nothing's authoritative in medicine. I'm sorry, it's just true, nothing's authoritative. And so many lawyers would walk away from that point because they hadn't thought through what the next line of attack for them would be. But think about it for a second. Wait a second. You're saying that this book, which is in its 17th edition, <laughs> which means that editors and publishers 17 times have decided this is a good book that we need to update and bring to the attention of doctors training in medicine, et cetera, et cetera, that it's just no good? Is that what you're saying? And so, well, I'm not saying it's no good. I'm just saying it's not authoritative. Well, what you mean by authoritative, sir, is papal infallibility. I'm not saying it's infallible when I ask you the question. I'm just asking if this is the kind of book that someone could reasonably turn to to answer a technical medical question. 
And then they may try to dodge that, saying, well, it just depends on what the statement is in the book. You can't say the blanket thing that everything in here is authoritative. And then, of course, your answer to that is you have to know the rule of evidence. The rule of evidence says it's not that you have to prove that the statement that you want to read to them is authoritative. You have to prove that the publication that it comes from is authoritative. That's a huge difference. And it makes sense when you think about it, because if they could say, I have to see the statement, look at it silently, and then I tell you, no, that's not authoritative, and then the jury never gets to hear it. No, that's not the way it works. The way it works is the publication that it comes from, once you, the cross-examiner, has established that as authoritative, then you get to ask the next question. So you tussle over that for a little bit, and you're ready for it because you've read the rule of evidence. You're ready to go to the bench if you have to and show the judge what the rule says, that it's the publication that counts. Then you can wallow around some more in the authoritativeness of the publication. This one has this enormous list of contributors, like a 100 authors. And it's got some brand name doctors on the list of the editors on the very first page. In fact, I happen to notice that the very first editor who's listed on the front page of this book is this guy named Anthony Fauci. Oh, I've heard of that guy, haven't you? And, you know, you get to wallow around in proving that the thing is authoritative. And it doesn't matter at the end whether or not they grudgingly accept that it's authoritative publication or whether they continue their foolish insistence that nothing is authoritative because you've got a plan for dealing with it. My point is, once you know the rules of evidence, you know you've got a good weapon, you can think through creatively how to use it, what are the different options for the witness to answer the question, having a plan for dealing with each option, and then you can just have a lot of fun because a good cross-examination is going to be fun. Pat, what's the best way for our listeners to buy your books, including The Fearless Cross-Examiner? Go to trialguides.com, T-R-I-A-L-G-U-I-D-E-S, trialguides.com, or just Google my name and Fearless Cross-Examiner, and the same website will come up, and you'll be on the page where you can get it. Actually, I've got a whole chapter on dealing with medical literature and this problem, and I've got chapters on some of the other key rules of evidence that you need to know. And then I've got some good chapters on uh, one good in particular on money cross and why cross-examining about money so often falls short. And just to give you the short answer on that, one reason it falls short is that if you simply prove that this witness has been paid a lot of money over the years to testify, that doesn't necessarily get you anywhere because we all know that in American society, money can stand for prestige and authoritativeness. Mm -hmm. And people think, wow, if he has charged so much money, he must really be worth it. He must really know what he's talking about if he's been hired by all these lawyers and all these courtrooms across America. What you have to do instead is link the money to bias and to show that they are one-sided and, and evasive then the money will come out as something less than prestigious for the person. So a lot of good stuff in there, and I do uh, commend it to folks. 
Good. For our listeners, I'll mention there's also a lot of good information about your work and your writings at your website, patrickmalonelaw.com. That concludes part two of our discussion of cross-examination with Pat Malone. Pat, we really appreciate that you've been so generous with your time discussing cross-examination, both this episode and part one. Pat, thank you very much. It was terrific. Well, Eric and John, I really enjoyed it, and call me back anytime. Thank you for that kind offer. We will keep your name nearby for the next time. So that's it for today. Thanks for joining us at The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm John Simon. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this Encore episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next time with a new episode. See you then. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast and subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning. <laughs>